In some sense, God's ultimate answer to human suffering is as simple as this. Can you make a hippopotamus? In some sense, God's ultimate answer to human suffering is as simple as this. Can you make a hippopotamus? Such were the words of Anthony Salvaggio reflecting upon chapters 38 to 41 of the book of Job. Now, at first blush, that sounds a little bit strange, but I think what we'll find as we look to chapters 38 to 41 of Job is that Salvaggio was just about right, or at least in part right, in his assessment of things. We're going to be covering uh, these four chapters this evening, these four chapters in which God finally shows up and speaks. We have not seen God speak in this drama since back in chapter 2, and there God's speaking was in the heavenly court. God had spoken with Satan back in chapters 1 and 2, but since then, in that interval that stretches from chapter 3 up through 37, we've seen a number of things, but we haven't seen God speak. We have seen how Job's friends spoke falsely of him, how Job defended himself, We've seen how Job's knowledge of the truth of God helped him to survive the storms that had come upon him. But we also saw how Job, in his defense of himself, ended up accusing God. And this, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was Elihu's concern in chapters 32 to 37. Elihu's anger burned against Job because... According to chapter 32, verse 2, he had justified himself rather than God. Elihu had said in chapter 35, verse 2, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? And near the end of Elihu's speech of those six chapters from chapter 32 through the end of chapter 37, Elihu began to turn to the created order and showed Job's ignorance of the created order, which implied also his ignorance of God's doings in other things, like God's manner of working in his own life. He says this in chapter 37, verses 14 through 18. He says, Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them? And makes the lightning of his cloud to shine. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind? Can you with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror? And so, in other words, Elihu is directing Job's attention to the created order of things, right? Near the end of his speech in chapter 37. And the Lord begins on the same theme when the Lord begins to speak in chapter 38. And so we're going to be breaking up the the reading as we we consider these chapters. But let's, let's begin reading. Let's look first at chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. So we'll be beginning tonight in Job 38, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? 
on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said thus far you shall come but no further, and here shall your proud waves stop. Now, in those first 11 verses, the Lord begins to speak to Job, and he refers to what Job has done throughout the course of Job's portion of the dialogue as darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Now, obviously, Job hadn't darkened counsel by words without knowledge in all that he had said. Job said a lot of true and helpful things, but sometimes... Job was darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Job, so much of the time, had been wanting to appear before God and present his case before God. He wanted to present his righteousness and his faithfulness before the Lord and to ask the Lord why he had sovereignly orchestrated all of these things that had come crashing down upon him. Now the Lord flips the tables, doesn't he? Verse 3, he says, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then the Lord immediately turns Job's attention to the created order. Right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who set its measurements? Who laid its cornerstone? Who enclosed the sea with doors? Where were you, Job, when I did all of this? Now let's pick up reading in verse 12. He says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth? And the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal. And they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld. And the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling place of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice? And the frost of heaven, who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season, and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens, or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being? 
and give an understanding to the mind, who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? The Lord is, again, directing Job's attention to the created order. All of these things that we we so often take for granted in the world. What does Job know about bringing in the morning? Has he ever commanded it? What does Job know about the springs of the sea? Has Job ever been down to the gates of death? Has Job ever understood the expanse of the earth? Does he know the way to the dwelling place of light? And notice the the strength of the Lord's words there in verse 21. It's almost almost an air of, of sarcasm. The Lord is a little bit biting. He says to Job, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. How about it, Job? He asked Job about the storehouses of the snow and the hail, about the channels for the rain when it comes down, the drops of dew, the origins of frost and ice. Can Job lead out the constellations, Orion and the bear and Pleiades? The clouds and the lightning will obey him. And then beginning in verse 39 and, and stretching on uh, really through the end of chapter 41, the Lord turns his attention to the animal kingdom. Begins there by talking about the, the prey of the lion, and then uh, verse, verse 41, the, uh, the food for the ravens. Let's pick up reading in, uh, in chapter 39. He says, Do you know the time of the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down and bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the land, uh, the salt land for its dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you, or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain? And gather it from your threshing floor. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and the plumage of love. For she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned. Because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength and goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed, and he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. 
with shaking and rage, he races over the ground. And he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar. And the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food, his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. What does Job know about the animals? What do you and I know about the animals? Now, we might know more than Job know. You can say, well, I watch Animal Planet. I watch National Geographic, right? We might, we might have gained some more scientific knowledge in the 3,000 years since the days of Job. I'm sure we have, as a human race, gained more. We might know some of these things about the calving of the deer and the mountain goats giving birth. Nevertheless, there's a lot we don't know. Who set the wild donkey free? Or if you have knowledge, what about the wild ox? Can you make him work for you? Can you make him work in your fields and on your farm? And when the Lord speaks of the ostrich in uh, verses 13 through 18, he doesn't ask any questions. He just speaks about his handiwork and his creativity. And he asks about the horse. Who gave the horse his strength? Who clothed him with a mane? Is it by Job's understanding or yours or mine is it by our command that the hawk and the eagle fly? God's not really answering the question here, is he? Instead, he's directing Job's attention to the created order of things. Does Job understand it? And the point is no, he doesn't. Same goes for you and I. We don't understand it. We might, as we said, have some additional points of knowledge. But we don't understand everything. And the sooner we understand that we do not understand, the better off we will be. There's much that is beyond our understanding. And the implication here is that if what is in the if that if the created order is beyond Job's understanding, then by implication, what has happened to Job in his suffering is also beyond his understanding. And God is under no obligation to give an account of it. Job doesn't need to understand the created order, just like You and I don't need to understand everything about the created order. What we have to do is to live in it and live with it. Nor does Job need to understand what happened to him and why it happened to him. He needs to live with it and to keep trusting that the God whose understanding and sovereignty has ordained and created and sustained a remarkable world and universe like the one that we live in. He needs to keep on trusting that this God is understanding and sovereign and wise also in ruling sovereignly over the circumstances that have come into his life. Job doesn't need to understand. Indeed, the Lord never offers an explanation so that he might understand. Now, maybe at some point in his life, Job received the revelation of what was going on in heaven in chapters 1 and 2. I don't know if Job ever had that revelation that we have or not. But even if he did have that, chapters 1 and 2 only tell how the suffering came to be. They don't explain why. They don't give the reasons why 
God allowed Satan to do what he did. It doesn't give the reason why the Lord first said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Right? That that reason is not given in the book of Job. God doesn't give the reason, and he doesn't owe it to us, or to Job to give the reason. The point is he doesn't have to answer to us. He is God, and we are his creatures. He's the sovereign, we are the subjects. And the sooner we get that straight, the better off we will be. Now, no doubt, we are we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in the image of God and are the crown of his creation. And he showed his love for us by sending his only begotten son to die for us. All of that is true, but still we need to remember who we are and who the Lord is. I don't know how many of you are, are Jane Austen fans or how many are familiar with Pride and Prejudice, prejudice in either its uh, written form or film versions, but there was an interesting line that came from the mouth of Elizabeth Bennet's father in one scene where Elizabeth and her father were talking about Elizabeth's sister Lydia going away for a time to a, to a different town where there was a regiment of soldiers stationed. Lydia had had a reputation for being a flirt, and Elizabeth understandably had concerns about Lydia being flirt in an environment where there are a bunch of soldiers. But Elizabeth's father said in reply, we shall have no peace if Lydia does not go to Brighton. Let her go then. Colonel Forster is a reasonable man and will keep her out of any real mischief. And she is luckily too poor to be an object of prey to anybody. At Brighton, she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here. The officers will find women better worth their notice. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. Let's face it, one of the problems that we too often have is that we think too highly of ourselves. I've mentioned this before, but when I was young, my father told me about four spiritual laws, and these are not the four you're thinking of. He said, number one, there is a God. Number two, you aren't him. Number three, you need to know that. Number four, you need to repent. We would all do well to contemplate our own insignificance and to recognize our place in the order of God, in God's order of things. Now, no doubt we are important, and God has said so by sending his Son to us to die for us, to rise again for us, to save us. But God owes us nothing, not even an explanation of how he runs the world or why your life is the way that it is. We can't understand, much less control the natural world, how much less the works that God may bring for his own purposes for the good of his children. These chapters call on us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We need to recognize that God is the judge, that he calls the shots, and that we answer to him and not he to us. And as we come to chapter 40, the Lord ceases for a time from looking at the world And he calls his attention toward Job himself and asks Job a couple of questions. So let's look at 40 verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. This was was Job's position. He was was fault finding with the Lord. He was, in a sense, reproving God. God, at least by implication, if not outright explicitly in 
some of the things that he had said. And Job replies there in verses 3 through 5. He says, uh, we read there, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. Right? If you thought it was a little bit too much for, for me to say we need to recognize our own insignificance, that's what Job says. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job gets the point. He understands his own insignificance. He understands that he was out of his league to be essentially accusing God while at the same time attempting to justify himself rather than God. And then the Lord speaks pointedly to Job in what follows in 6 through 14. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Now, now notice that the question that the Lord asks in verse 8. He says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? This is further evidence that Elihu was right in his contention with Job. This was the very thing that he was angry with Job about as recorded in chapter 32, verse 2. And in the verses that follow, the Lord challenges Job in regard to his strength. Can Job do all of those things which the Lord challenges him to do? Of course he can't. That being the case, Job's right hand cannot save him. Therefore, Job must humble himself before the Lord and be dependent on the Lord. In the beginning, in chapter 40, verse 15, the Lord returns to his works in creation, particularly this time two of them. First, the behemoth, and then the leviathan in chapter 41. Let's look to the text. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? Will, you, will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? 
Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him, remember the battle, and you will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to rouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come away with his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. As from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him, he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now, as we begin to consider 40 verse 15 through the end of chapter 41, let's address the obvious question, right? What are these creatures that are here described, the behemoth and the leviathan? Well, that's, that's a good question. Right? If you look back at the, the older commentators, say from the 17th, 18th centuries, like Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, John Gill, they'll tell you that the received opinion of their day was that the behemoth was an elephant and that the leviathan was a whale, though they mention the fact that there's kind of a, kind of a new opinion that's kind of making waves that the behemoth was a hippopotamus and that the leviathan was a crocodile. Matthew Poole's comment was, I shall not undertake to determine the controversy, but show how each part of the following description is or may be applied to them severally. And this being no point concerning faith or a good life, everyone may take the more liberty to understand the place of one or other of them. John Gill commented in regard to chapter 41 that there are some things in this description of the creature that seem to agree best with the crocodile and others that seem better suited with the whale and some with neither. The, uh, the latter opinions that these creatures are the, the crocodile and the uh, hippo respectively are held by many today. Some have even posited 
that the creatures described here may be a dinosaur or dinosaur-ish kind of creature. Gil, at the end of the day, held, along with some others, that it was a dragon of the land sort, is what he called it. And so I don't know if that's 18th century uh, parlance for a dinosaur. It's certainly possible, right? And uh, in some sense, I'm with Matthew Poole on this. It's not my, not my intention here to determine the controversy and settle which type of creature it was on the natural and physical level. But what I would say, though, is that especially in regard to chapter 41, we may well wonder if there's actually something deeper and something more spiritual that is taking place here. On the one hand, the Leviathan does appear to have been a sea or water creature that was known in the ancient world. Psalm 104, verse 26, describes the Leviathan as a creature of the Lord sporting in the sea. But John Gill commented on Psalm 104, verse 26, and said, This creature is generally reckoned by the ancients as a figure of Satan, it being king over all the children of pride, as he is the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world who has been playing his tricks in it from the beginning of it, not only deceiving our first parents, but all nations of the world, nor are the saints ignorant of his devices. And what's fascinating is if you look at Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, where we have a, a reference to the Leviathan. Uh, this, is, this is what we read there. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And so there's this, there's this connection in, in the Jewish mind and in the ancient world between Leviathan and a serpent, between Leviathan, a serpent, and a dragon, is anyone hearing echoes of Genesis 3? Serpent, Satan coming creeping into the garden. Is anyone thinking ahead to Revelation 20, verse 2? And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Anybody making these connections? And so on the one hand, in these descriptions of the behemoth and the Leviathan, I think we're dealing with literal earthly creatures, of which Job and his friends would have been familiar. The Lord reminds Job of his creative work and power, and therefore of Job's own weakness. But especially in the case of the Leviathan, the Lord may also be pointing to Satan himself, reminding Job that mankind is in no condition to contend with Satan. Right? You'll remember the struggle and never do it again. But nevertheless, reminding him that the Lord is in control, even of such spiritual dragons. And we... Thank God, have the blessing of knowing much more than Job did, knowing how God would ultimately conquer the serpent, the dragon, the spiritual Leviathan, Satan, by means of the cross and resurrection of Christ. And though we have the, the blessing of that knowledge, we're often like Job, still in the dark as to the particulars of our sufferings. Now, I think 1 Peter 1, as we read at the beginning, I think 1 Peter 1 gives us a, a broad picture, right, that... Now we, we suffer these, these various things, these trials, so that the proof of our faith, uh, which is uh, of greater value than gold, which, uh, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may be found uh, to bring forth praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials that we endure are ultimately for the strengthening of our faith. That's God's purpose in them. But nevertheless... We don't understand all of the reasons why. We've got, we've got the big picture, but we don't, we don't have all of the data. And when we find ourselves in that case, 
when the suffering comes, there's no answers for the particulars, right? We know we got the big picture, but we don't have all of the particulars. We don't know why this suffering had to come to me to perfect my faith. Couldn't there be, have been some other form of suffering which would have been more palatable to me? When we find ourselves there, let's remember the lessons that are taught here to Job. Right? Let's remember our own insignificance. Let's say with Job, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Let's remember our own insignificance. Let's remember the greatness of the Lord. His power, His strength, and wisdom. We see it in creation. We see it in salvation, right? We've got a fuller picture than Job had. And we see God's wisdom and power and strength not only in creation, but also in the plan of salvation. And in all of that, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt us in due time. That's what we find in 1 Peter 5. And to that end, I think the words of commentator John Walton are helpful. He said, The book of Job encourages us to avoid the easy reductionism that makes God accountable to how we think the world ought to operate. His wisdom extends far beyond our short-sightedness. There is always more afoot than we can imagine. Our ideas of how things ought to work will always be naive and simplistic. God asks that we trust him. Walton continues, he says, We cannot know reasons, and we cannot assume that there are reasons. We should assume that there are purposes, but that does not mean that we can or will ever know those purposes. The injustice, suffering, trials, and crises that we experience shape us into the people we are and the people God desires us to be. This truth is not intended to bring comfort to those suffering, nor does it do so. It is meant to bring understanding that might prevent us from committing Job's error, which is the easy solution of blaming God. The alternative is to trust God. And I think, in large part, that's where the book of Job leaves us, right? We see, we'll see, Lord willing, a couple weeks, chapter 42, Job's, Job's restoration. But I think, in large part, the book of, book of Job helps us to understand that there are no easy answers, and we have to trust God and rest in Him in the midst of it all. We want answers to our suffering, obviously, but often, so often, there are no answers given to us. And as harsh as it may sound, we have to be all right with that. Through it all, we have to trust God rather than blaming Him. So may God strengthen us to do just that when trials and hard times come. Because we know ultimately that the purpose is that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. That we don't understand why it had to be done this way. Let's pray. Our Father, these are, are difficult truths for us. Difficult truths for us, especially living in the time and place in which we live. Lord, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you may exalt us in due time. Lord, we ask when we don't understand that we would still trust. Lord, we praise you for the fact that there is always more afoot in your purposes and in the events that happen to us, more afoot than we know, more afoot perhaps than we can imagine. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would help us to rest and to trust. We praise you for your works of creation, which we have seen in your word tonight, 
Lord, we praise you for your even greater works of salvation, sending your Son into the world for us, showing your love for us through him. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us, help us to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.